This is Leadership Letters, the podcast reflecting on and discussing all things leadership. Coming up. Mediation seemed to have this way to involve people in the process where they could be part of it. A really good leader encourages conflict. Where to start? when we don't know where to start. However, candor is not the same thing as brutal honesty. Being a conflict courageous leader doesn't mean you're warm and fuzzy all the time. Listen. And that sounds like a really useful starting point for leaders. Hello, I'm Lizzie Bentley Bowers and welcome to this episode of Leadership Letters. This month, we're going to be focusing on compassion and conflict. Two things that might sound at odds with each other. But as leaders, understanding the relationship between compassion and conflict is enormously helpful. We'll be hearing from our fantastic guest, Dr. Samantha Hardy, about mediation and conflict. And then stick around afterwards for the Leadership Letters Lowdown, where I'll be sharing some recommendations for ways that you can think more and try out more for yourself as a leader around compassion and around managing conflict. Dr. Samantha Hardy is a leader in the field of conflict resolution. Sam has advanced postgraduate qualifications, including a PhD in conflict resolution, as well as many years of international experience as a conflict resolution practitioner. In addition to offering conflict coaching and mediation services, Sam is the founder of the Real Conflict Coaching System and a well-known trainer in this field. She's a university educator and an author in the field of conflict resolution. And she's been described as both a practical thinker and a thinking practitioner. So as coaches, Sam, as I'm sure you know, managing conflict and relationships is something that leaders bring to the table often. So I'm so delighted to have the chance to hear your wisdom and pick your brains. So thank you so much for joining us from the other side of the world on Leadership Letters. Thanks for joining us, Sam. You're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I'm immediately curious as to whether or not your early experiences of leadership influenced what you do now? Yes, definitely. I guess my first real job after university was as a lawyer in a big law firm. And my experience of being led was being led by terror. I was just, all the junior lawyers or the articled clerks as we were back then were basically fearful of our leaders. We were often humiliated, threatened, uh, and it was sort of leadership by absolute terror, <laughs> uh, which, you know, I guess in a sense made us work very hard, but whether or not it made us productive and it certainly didn't make us loyal um, was a very challenging experience. And I think that it probably did influence me in that I, I didn't feel supported. I didn't feel like I was actually learning in a, in a really constructive way, you know, you, you have to learn because you're afraid, but when you're learning with that level of emotion, it doesn't sink in and you make mistakes because you're afraid. And I think it actually worked against them in the end. Two years after I joined that firm, when I joined, there were 20 junior lawyers just out of university. And when I left, there were only two remaining. So I think that's probably an indictment of <laughs> that sort of leadership. It's a kind of leadership that, like you say, you might get some results in the moment, but whether you've got lasting ability and capacity to continue to deliver those results is really doubtful. 
And that's quite an extreme example, but I do think it's really interesting for leaders to think about how might I be engendering a bit of fear, a bit of worry about performance in a way that might get in the way, not only of what people are doing, but how they feel about it. And indeed their loyalty, there's so much in there. Yes. And I think without that engagement, you do what you have to do to get by, but there's no you know, no one's volunteering to do extra. No one's going to go above and beyond because they don't feel like anybody cares for them. And the people who give the 120% to try and meet the sort of often unattainable standards are the people who burn out and end up going on stress leave or sick leave or having to resign because they just can't maintain it in the long term. So it's a short-term gain for long-term pain, that kind of leadership. Is it the legal connection that led you to the world of mediation? So at the same time I was working at this firm, I was doing a Master's of Law and as part of that I did a subject called Alternative Dispute Resolution and this was in 1996 or 1997 and back then mediation wasn't a really big thing. It was available in the community sector. It was often a volunteer service and that just changed my whole outlook on conflict. All of a sudden, there was a way to get people to communicate, to talk about their emotions, what really mattered to them. And one of the things that I really noticed was often, even when my clients had won their case in court, they didn't feel happy afterwards. They didn't feel like it had been resolved. They might have won a large amount of money, but they didn't feel like that made the whole situation go away. And it was as if it never happened, which is kind of the fiction that the law tells us. And then mediation seemed to have this way to involve people in the process where they could be part of it rather than an observer, where they could speak their own language, they could talk about what was really important to them. So, yes, that was the end of my legal career in a way. I I resigned from my job as a lawyer at that point, much to the horror of my friends and family. And that was sort of the beginning from there. And and as you were talking, I... I almost felt a sense of relief when you talked about the difference between thrashing out a legal agreement and engaging with the human side of what was going on. So what what that sort of positive psychological impact that you witnessed was and that sort of hooked you in? The most important thing is that people felt empowered. They felt they were supported by a mediator and often they would have lawyers involved as well, but as their sort of side support person, not the person in front of them. So people were supported to have conversations that were often very difficult directly with the person they were in conflict with rather than sort of hiding behind a lawyer to have a conversation about something that didn't actually feel relevant to them. So I think there was that. I think it allowed people to talk about, as I said, what mattered to them, which often didn't fall within what you were legally able to argue about in court. And people would come up with these really creative outcomes. And sometimes even when they didn't get a very good result, even if the outcome wasn't great for them, at least they understood how it had come about. They were there, they understood the conversations that were taking place. Often they got to say things that they really wanted to say or hear answers to questions that they really wanted the other person to to answer for them that would never have happened in a court sort of situation. So I think it's that being personally involved and still supported through that. And for me, the important part was allowing people and supporting people to have direct conversations with the person that they were in conflict. And often if that had happened much earlier, 
it wouldn't have got to that point where they needed the assistance. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lesson for leaders in that, that have those conversations earlier and it's so much easier and cheaper <laughs> than if you delay them and they become harder and harder to have and then more and more expensive to manage. There's so much more on the table is what I'm hearing than, you know, mm-hmm. than, than what we think the conflict is about. It, it, it's an opportunity for everything to be on the table. I know there might be a cynical voice in some people's heads saying, is it really possible to leave a conflict where you have felt strongly that you're right or felt strongly that you are losing something in some way? Because I think we try and do that, don't we? We try and win mm-hmm. conversations. So what in your experience makes it possible for people to leave something that what it was really initially about was winning with mm-hmm. something different? I think part of the problem is that when we think about conflict, we often think about it like a melodrama. This is another um, big, big topic of mine. We think about I'm the innocent victim, the other person's the bad guy, I need to win this and it's justice and it's what's right. You know, they're evil and I'm good and I'm doing the best I can and maybe I made some mistakes, but they're doing it deliberately. We tell ourselves a story and, you know, you can fill in the details and the context to suit your own particular conflict. But we're sort of trained in a way to tell conflict in that way. And the legal system absolutely tells conflict in that way. And I think when you get people in a room together and allow them to share their stories, they recognise that their story of the conflict is just that, their story. It's not the story, that there's another story. And there are other people who might be observing or impacted by what's what's happening, who have also different versions of events. So it complexifies the situation. And I think then people recognise that that win-lose thing that, that we're, we walk in wanting isn't real. It's not based on a balanced, nuanced understanding of the situation that you're in. And the more we recognise other people's perspectives, other people's experiences, we don't have to agree with them, but recognising that they're different from ours and sometimes that explains why we've got into this situation, it opens up different opportunities for an, an ending or an outcome that might not look at anything like what we walked in looking for because we have a whole new understanding of what the situation involved, what the other person's needs were, what their underlying fears were, what they were anticipating or expecting when they did this or said that. You know, we, you don't get that in a court environment. You don't get that level of understanding. In fact, you get a very superficial adversarial version of events and you lose all that nuance. So in that when you have that, those two adversarial stories, you can only come up with a win-lose outcome. But when you mingle those together and you have this really complex, nuanced, you know, it's not so straightforward version of events, it's scary. It doesn't seem so clear that I'm right and you're wrong and this should be the outcome, but it opens up all sorts of possibilities. And that when you support people through that, it's amazing what can happen at the end. It doesn't necessarily mean everyone kind of kisses and hugs and they're best friends when they leave, but they they leave having learnt something and walked away feeling at least kind of comfortable with the outcome. They can live with it. So I'm, I'm imagining myself sort of doing the kind of verbal tennis and, and watch it and, and thinking, oh, that's a really good point. Oh, that's a really good point. 
how does the mediator approach supporting and challenging that process without taking sides? Because it must be really hard, I'm thinking. I think the more you do it, the more you realise that, that there, there aren't, the sides don't exist. The sides mm-hmm. are a sort of fake story that people come in with and it's much more complicated. For me, it's a little bit like a detective story, a little bit like reality TV. That sounds awful, but it kind of is because I hear a little bit of a story and I think, oh, yes, I can see that. I can say, oh, that sounds really awful. And then I listen to the other person. I'm like, oh, wow, that's not what I was expecting to hear. Turns out you were trying your best too and you saw it differently. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, what actually is going on here? And often by the end of the mediation, I'm not really sure what's going on, but I have a lot more possibilities mingled together in all the different people's stories. Um, and, And at the end of the day, what's important is that they understand what's going on or have a better understanding of what's been going on and what they might choose to do in the future. That's the trick. It's about getting more information on the table. And at the start, not for the purpose of doing anything, not for the purpose particularly of reaching any agreement, just for sharing information for the sake of let's get a little bit more clear about what's been going on here. Let's all add our information to the pool of information and then everyone have a look at the big picture now and then we all decide what might be good to do with this extra information. We've got more Lego pieces to build something creative. And that sounds like a really useful starting point for leaders because we're talking here about perhaps some of the more extreme legal examples, but then it sounds as though it it translates really beautifully to those situations leaders find themselves in where you've got two or three people coming with a, they said this, they said this scenario. What are the skills that leaders can use and the relationship between conflict and leadership? I'd love to hear more. I think one of the main things that I would say, and it sounds counterintuitive, but a really good leader encourages conflict. I know that sounds maybe a little controversial because we think of conflict as something bad, as something negative that we should avoid, we should shut down, we should resolve. But I think conflict kind of has a bad rap. It's, it's not, it can actually be a really positive thing because what it does is it creates an environment where we can all share different information, different ideas, different perspectives. We can, you know, build our, our collection of Lego pieces or jigsaw pieces and we can come up with creative ideas and opportunities to grow and to build connections by learning more about people. What makes conflict good or bad is how we manage it. And I think a lot of leaders kind of intuitively try to resolve things really quickly, like let's just get rid of this conflict and move on. And they do tend to shut it down too early rather than opening up the kinds of learning conversations that people could have where they could get to know each other better, they could share different ideas, they could open up these opportunities for creativity and innovation. So I think there's not shutting it down too soon. Um, and encouraging more information sharing before choosing an outcome. In coaching, as, as I know you know, quite often what someone will say they want to work on is having difficult conversations. And I think, as you say, for, for leaders to think about how they, well, I said, again, I, I was about to say resolving things sooner, and, I, and it is about resolving. And I, and I guess I'm really interested in the language there as well. I'm already noticing, having listened to you, that I'm using that language of resolve. And what other language might there be 
that we could use to describe a positive outcome from a conflict? I can give you a couple of different examples. I talk a lot about conflict management because a lot of what we do in, in managing conflict is just managing it. Some conflict is not going to go away. Sometimes people have very different personalities, very different values, very different ideas about what the right outcome is. And in those situations, the conflict is either never going to be resolved or it's going to be resolved by a compromise, by somebody giving up something they believe in which likely leaves a little bit of the conflict sort of simmering along in the background so that it's never actually completely resolved when when we have to compromise and give up something. And I I also think we need to not be too idealistic about this idea that you can have a win-win outcome where everyone walks away happy, having done much better than they thought. Yes, occasionally that's possible, but it is a little bit of an ideal. I don't think it's the norm. So I think recognising that sometimes the best we can do is manage. Sometimes we can resolve, but we have to be careful not to superficially resolve it and actually leave some other things simmering away that are going to undo it later on or create other problems. The ideal, though, and this is something that, that, that you can do with a bit of coaching as well, is conflict transformation. And that's what I call, what's what I try to do with my clients, which is getting them to think about conflict differently and changing their way of thinking and feeling about conflict so that they go from someone who maybe is a chronic conflict avoider or someone who tends to get really aggressive when they feel like they're not being heard and they learn about themselves and others and the way they work, the world works, and they become a really good leader or a really good colleague or a good partner in a relationship because they've transformed their relationship with conflict. And that has long-term impacts, way beyond the particular conflict that maybe brought them to me in the first place. So I think there's that spectrum between managing, resolving and transforming in the in the conflict outcome spectrum entirely different and yet the same for the (laughs) for the goal of the leader to create the conditions to transform the organization's relationship with conflict Mm -hmm. rather than see the resolver of the conflict Yes. My sort of specialty is conflict management coaching. So sometimes that's working with people who are in conflict who need um, some help to to get through the discomfort and be constructive in the way they engage. But I also do a lot of work with leaders who have been appointed to a leadership position because they're very good engineers or in their particular field of expertise. And suddenly they realise that as a leader, a lot of what they have to deal with is conflict of some kind, whether it's with their staff, with external stakeholders, with government regulators a lot of it is about managing conflict and often they haven't received the training and developed the confidence to manage that and their skills in their particular area are not enough to get them through Um, so a lot of what I do is building people's conflict competence and confidence I suppose to, to navigate those difficulties which exist in every single situation we're in I mean conflict is such a fundamental part of every aspect of our lives isn't it it is. And I'm, I'm really desperate to ask you what your key bits of advice for those leaders are. But I think we might hear them in your letters. <laughs> this could be the perfect segue to your letter. It so, might. <laughs> so who have you written to, Sam, and, um, and, and why? And then I'd love to hear you share your letter. So I thought I might do something a little bit different. What I've done is I've written a letter as if I was that you know my dream leader as if I was the dream leader of any kind of organization dear team 
I'm writing to you to explain my beliefs and expectations about conflict in our organisation. It's a manifesto, if you like, and my promise to you. Please understand that for me, conflict is not a dirty word. Conflict is not always something bad. Yes, there are certain conflicts that need never arise and should be prevented. However, there are other kinds of conflict that are important and useful. I not only expect conflict to arise in our organisation, I welcome it. This is because I believe that disagreements and differences of opinion are very healthy. Conflict is always an opportunity for learning and the foundation of creativity, innovation and growth. Conflict itself is not the issue. How we manage it is what makes the difference between positive or negative experiences. I will help create an environment in which people can raise disagreements and differences with candour. However, candour is not the same thing as brutal honesty. We must all work together to create, monitor and maintain boundaries that set clear expectations about what kinds of behaviours are required to create a safe space for people to have difficult conversations. I know that there are many different perspectives involved in any conflict, and this creates an opportunity for us to communicate and connect with each other. Rather than trying to take another person's perspective by simply imagining what they might think and feel, I encourage everyone to do the hard work of building relationships based on trust so that they can have a conversation in which they can ask questions, share their thoughts and feelings, and actually give each other their perspective directly. When conflict arises, dealing with it earlier is better. The festering of unresolved issues can quickly create an unhealthy and unsafe work environment, negatively impacting individuals, teams and the organisation. So please do not hesitate to ask for support if you feel worried about a conflict situation. I will never judge someone for asking for help. On the contrary, I will acknowledge your courage in doing so. I recognise that when a conflict arises, one size does not fit all. This organisation provides a range of processes and services to ensure that all employees have the necessary resources to manage and resolve their conflicts in a constructive way. Our processes include informal and confidential processes as well as more formal processes. Where a person is comfortable to try to manage a conflict themselves, this is encouraged and we will support you all to develop the skills and courage to do so. All employees can access conflict management and communication training and we also offer one-on-one -on -one services such as coaching when you might need a little more tailored support. I encourage all employees to build your capacity to manage conflict effectively and to understand all the options available to help you do so. As a leader, I will make it safe for you to raise issues directly with me when necessary. I will listen to your concerns and do my best to provide you with appropriate support and access to suitable processes. I encourage you to come with me with more than complaints. Please let me know what you have tried to do to manage the situation so far and what your suggested solutions might be. I acknowledge that there will be many times when I do not have all the relevant information, so I will hear you out, check facts, and where possible, consult with relevant stakeholders before I rely on any assumptions or make any decisions. I will do my best to support people in conflict to find solutions that meet everybody's needs. 
I acknowledge, however, that there will be times when I have to make a choice that not everyone will agree with. A leader's role is bound to involve conflict. As Barack Obama said, by the time a problem comes to me, there's no easy solution. Whatever I decide is going to make someone unhappy. I am prepared and willing to make those hard decisions when necessary. However, I assure you that when possible, I am committed to genuine consultation and collaborative decision-making. Every one of us needs to contribute to a workplace in which conflict is managed early and constructively. And I encourage you to take the opportunities we provide to develop your skills and the confidence to do so. It's a great quote that you ended with. By the time a problem comes to me, there's no easy solution. Isn't that the story of leadership? My goodness. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason I put that there, I actually showed this to a colleague of mine before reading it to you tonight. And she was worried that I may, that I may have made it sound like, oh, we'll be all warm and fuzzy, except when I decide that I'm going to decide. And then you just have to suck it up. And I said, no, that's not quite what I was getting at. What what I see often for leaders is they try too hard to be the warm and fuzzy. Everybody talks it through and we come up with an outcome that everyone can live with. And sometimes that's not appropriate. Sometimes there's no time for that. Sometimes it's not safe for that. Sometimes it is actually the leader's responsibility to resolve the conflict by using the power they have as a leader. And I think that's important to recognise too, that being a conflict courageous leader doesn't mean you're warm and fuzzy all the time. It means you you choose the appropriate intervention given the situation and those sort of parameters. And sometimes that means that you come in with your power and you use it to force an outcome. And there was something you said at the beginning that really speaks to that for me as well, where you made that distinction so important between the conflicts that need and should never arise and the conflicts that are a part of life and work and that we can work with and that can be useful. And again, that's in terms of creating safety, that's a crucial role for the leader. You know, there are some conflicts need and should never arise and some things that there will need to be appropriate boundary around. Yes. And I think Brene Brown's work around shields and armour and boundaries is really applicable in this context that often what we do in conflict is we put up our shields and our armour to try and protect ourselves literally in the arena, the conflict arena. But, but that stops us from communicating effectively and it stops us from actually engaging in a way that's constructive. It doesn't mean, in, to use Brene's words, that, you know, we go naked into the arena because that's not often safe either. But what we need to do is find that middle ground between protecting people so that they can still engage and not shutting them off entirely so that the conflict can't be engaged with because the, the shields and the armour are not allowing the communication to happen. If you're working with leaders or you're talking to leaders and you're saying and, and they're saying, right, OK, I, I get this, but I don't know where to start. I don't know which skills to start building and how because I want to be better at this. What's your advice in terms of a, a place to start skills to isolate and then start working on? I think one of the first things is really understanding conflict well. We often think we know what conflict is, but when I ask people what's conflict, they come up with words like fight, war, argument. They, they come up with a very negative, uh, negatively laden words. So I think the first thing is about understanding what conflict is, that it's not always something negative. It can be differences in needs. It can be differences in values. It can be different emotional reactions, different communication styles, you know, different ideas about 
um, whether a task should be done, how a task should be done, who should do the task. I think it's about getting very specific about what actually the conflict is, because often when we're in conflict, we talk about it very superficially. Um, but so digging beneath the surface, asking very good questions um, and encouraging people to think more carefully about what their underlying needs and concerns are, not just what they want. I think the second thing is understanding the range of processes that you might have in an organisation from the informal confidential type um, services to the more formal grievance policies. Often what I see in organisations is you have two things. The first thing you should do if you have a problem with somebody is try and sort it out yourself. And the second thing is you file a, a grievance and we go through a formal investigation. You know, if people could do it themselves, they would have already done it themselves. They wouldn't need to come to the policy. So by the time they come asking for help, if the only thing you can offer them is a formal grievance process with an investigation, you've, you've lost the opportunity to support people to engage themselves, to develop their thinking and a little bit of courage to engage um, those things. And upskilling your employees, that is a key. Giving them an opportunity to do some training. If you've got the resources, giving them the opportunity for one-on-one -on -one support. Having a coach who can talk them through it and put it into their current context right when they need it. If you can afford that, it's such a valuable resource. I did some work with um, Roger Schwartz and, and I on, on that course. And one of their principles was have the conversation about the conversation. Slow down. And they talked about slow down to go fast, but actually slow down to save money is also so, so true when it comes to this money, energy, time. So much as I would love to keep talking, I'm going to have to ask a closing question. Something I love to find out from our guests is whether there's something that if someone wants a way in a starting point or a resource that you found hugely valuable, what's what's a recommendation, either something they could read or watch or listen to? What would be your number one go-to that you'd like to share with the people who are listening? Can I share two? Go on, <laughs> then. A, if you want to understand conflict better, there's a book, we actually use it as a textbook in one of the master's courses that I teach called The Conflict Toolkit by Gary Furlong. And it's a book that has a whole lot of different tools to analyse conflict in different ways. So that's a really good starting point to help you to think about conflict differently and what might be underlying it. The other book that I'd like to recommend is, is a book by a man called Bernard Mayer, Bernie Mayer, and it's called Staying with Conflict. And his book is all about what you can do when the conflict can't be resolved. How do you manage ongoing conflict? How do you keep communication open? How do you manage power plays or how do you set boundaries to protect people? And I really love that book because it's one of the few books out there that isn't about how to fix it, how to resolve it. It's about recognising that sometimes it's about managing through it. That it, and, and so I really like that. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Two more for the bookshelf. Sam, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your approaches. There's such rich resource for people who are listening in everything that you've said. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This is the Leadership Letters podcast, the podcast reflecting on and discussing all things leadership. And time now for this episode's Leadership Letters Lowdown. There's a strong connection between everything we heard earlier from Sam around conflict and compassion as a leader. Choosing a compassionate view is something we've talked about here in Leadership Letters before. And for those of you out there that I've worked with, I know we'll have probably talked about it and talked about it many times. Compassion for self 
and compassion for others benefits leaders in a myriad of ways. It has an impact on you and your well-being, an impact on your working relationships, your conversations, and indeed on your organisations. And it's not always easy. Sometimes, hopefully often, the compassionate thought is the one that will spring up. But we are complex humans with our own stuff, dealing with complex humans with their own stuff. When the compassionate thought doesn't spring to mind, it then becomes about choice. The choice to give in to an irritated or judgmental thought, or to actively choose a more compassionate thought. Earlier this month, my news and social media feeds were awash here in the UK with judgment of people queuing for fuel, or filling their petrol tanks, or other receptacles getting filled with fuel. Angry emojis were everywhere, sarcasm, comments on how awful and selfish people are. People were being mocked, people were being abused for what they were doing. And like many of you, I found this difficult to constantly see in my news and social media feeds, because, to state the obvious, none of us knew what any of those people in any of those queues were going through. Usually, if we saw someone filling a plastic bag with petrol, our worst response might be to think, well, that's odd. But we'd probably be far more likely to go and ask that person if they were okay or if they needed help. We don't know a stranger's reason for filling their car with fuel any more than we did last month, last year or five years ago. But what was happening was such a powerful reminder that scarcity and stress are powerful drivers of threat responses. And in general, our threat responses are not our cognitive, at our best kinds of responses. And it got me thinking about the workplace equivalent of reacting to people in the fuel queue thinking about what we can all take more responsibility for to increase the compassion levels at work. What can you as a leader take responsibility for in how you feel about someone or think about them? Do you need to get to know them a little better, find some common ground or something that you can appreciate about them? Do you need to be more honest with them about what they're doing and work together on it being better? Or maybe look at what you're responsible for creating in the relationship. Make some more compassionate assumptions, maybe. No one I've worked on this with has ever said it's easy or possible to be compassionate 100% of the time. I haven't found that either. Like I said earlier, we are human. So I don't share this from a place of perfection of my own, far from it, or of expecting any of you to do it all the time. But I do share it from a place of trying to do it more often to have a thought that has compassion for ourselves, compassion for others. Because to go back to the fuel queue example, if I'm angry about every queue I go past and every image I see about it, I will have a miserable time. And I probably will end up adding to that noise in a way I won't enjoy or feel proud of either. So choosing compassion helps me as much as it also hopefully helps others. Choosing compassion for self and others, it's courageous and worthwhile work. So connected to compassion and the conflict that Sam was talking about earlier, as you know, every month I share some recommendations, something to read, watch or listen to, to stimulate your thinking, whether you're an aspiring leader, someone who's been leading for a long time or anywhere in between. So we heard a couple of wonderful suggestions from Sam for something to read. And my to read recommendation is one about working at better conversations and relationships, useful in managing conflict and certainly useful in managing 
our levels of compassion. And at a time when what we say and how we say it perhaps matters more than ever, I've really been enjoying Catherine Mannix's book, Listen, How to Find the Words for Tender Conversations. Those of you I've worked with will probably know how useful I believe it is to change thinking about a difficult conversation to thinking about an important conversation. And I really love Catherine's extension of that thought to tender conversations. It's such a powerful way to describe the kinds of conversations we need to have, the kinds of conversations we need to go towards. Something that might be uncomfortable, even painful, but that nevertheless needs tending to. It's a really wonderful book about where to start when we don't know where to start. She says in the introduction, eventually there comes a time for words and then the word finding difficulty begins. This is a wonderful book to help you find your way through. And speaking of managing conflict and compassionate leadership and a whole lot more besides, which we have been today, my to watch recommendation, you can probably hear in my voice already how much I loved it, is Ted Lasso. If you haven't already been watching it and enjoying it, um, I have a feeling you will. And if you have, well, hey, have a second pass at it. It is so great. Such a wonderful inquiry into the impact of compassionate leadership. I love it when he says, I want you to know I value each of your opinions, even when you're wrong. And we believe him when he says it. And finally, the to listen recommendation is another TED Radio Hour. I've recommended those before on this podcast. They really are such a great mix of insight and ideas to ponder. So you'll find a link to a TED Radio Hour on the theme of conflict in the notes accompanying this podcast, where you'll also find links to all the other recommendations we've made this month. So there we are. Thank you so much for joining us today on Leadership Letters. And my thanks again to Sam for being such an insightful and interesting guest. There are plenty more Leadership Letters and Lowdowns that you can download and follow wherever you downloaded this episode. And if you'd like to get in touch with your own recommendations to read, watch or listen to, or to let me know who you'd like to hear from on Leadership Letters, you can do that via thecausewaycoaching.com. This is the Leadership Letters podcast, the podcast reflecting on and discussing all things leadership. See you soon.